0: This I do, being mad. Gather baubles about me. Sit in a circle of toys. And all the time, death beating the door in. White jade and an orange pitcher. Hindu idol, Chinese god. Maybe next year when I'm richer. Carved beads and a lotus pod. And all this time, Death beating the door in. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, the podcast taking a closer look at poetry. This week's poem is Siege, by arguably one of the United States' earliest rock star poets, Edna St. Vincent Millay. To say that Millay was a trailblazer is putting it lightly. In many senses, she became a radiant symbol for the new woman, the 1920s. That is to say, a woman who would not be content to be constricted to the rigid and overly conservative gender roles of the previous century. Indeed, the only word that could be used to describe Malay's rise to popularity when she was discovered at the age of 19 would be stratospheric. The poem that put her on the map, so to speak, was Renaissance. She first delivered it to a rapt audience in a cafe her sister worked in. The accounts of that particular evening are myth-making in the extreme. And indeed, any account of Malay's performances spoke of the control she had over crowds. An innate ability to draw people in and make them fall in love with her. As journalist Maggie Doherty wrote, This enchantress is the Malay whom many came to know. She was a siren, a seductress, a candle burning with a lovely light before being unceremoniously snuffed out. That unceremonious snuffing out would happen both for the poet's career and sadly for their life, but we'll get to that later. This reputation as an enchantress is something that Millais took to and continued to build on throughout her life. Her ability to bring people in was something she prided herself on. In an era long before everyone understood the concept of PR, Edna St. Vincent Millay understood that a life of scandal and stepping outside the social norm was the best way to remain relevant. As a result of this, she wrote fearlessly on a variety of topics, which up until that point hadn't been touched upon by a female poet in centuries. Love, lust, desire, eroticism, and hedonism all featured as staple themes in her work. When those did not drive her writing, Radical politics of the day became her focus. She wrote poems and plays on anarchism and spiritualist spiritualist ideologies, such as anti-materialism. Such was the breadth of her subject matter that eminent poetry editor of the time, Harriet Monroe, wrote of Millais, that a certain living lady may perhaps be the greatest poet since Sappho. That was high praise indeed. Millais courted controversy wherever she could. Engaging in bisexual flings and torrid love affairs with notable trendsetters of her time. She embodied that most famous of Oscar Wilde adages. There is only one thing in life worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. She was, of course, lauded and criticized in equal measure for her hedonistic lifestyle. As was characteristic for her, she responded to comments in verse. One of her most famous poems was born of her social visibility. It is called First Fig. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But ah, my foes and oh, my friends. It gives a lovely light. It is unfortunate that this poem, one of her earliest published works and most memorable, would become something of a self-fulfilling prophecy for the poet. Before we continue, I have a favour to ask. If you've been enjoying the poem so far, or are just a listener in general, please consider leaving me a review wherever you listen. It is a phenomenal help in getting the podcast out to new people. Thanks a million. With that being said, let's get on with the show. As you may have noticed, this week's poem, Siege, uses quite a bit of formal language, but has flares of the modern throughout. Millet was a great lover of the Petrarchan sonnet. A variation on the sonnet, favoured by Italian lyric poets of the Middle Ages. She often used rigid poetic structure in her verse. Her love of more traditional forms placed her firmly outside the emerging modernist tradition of the early 20s. This, sadly, did nothing for her long-term reputation amongst critics. As academic Declan Ryan put it, Millet was wedded to traditional forms, especially the sonnet, into which she breathed a great deal of new womanish zeal, happily playing the part of the ingenue and then girl about town, embracing her reputation as a bed-hopping libertine. Her diction was often old-fashioned, sometimes knowingly, artfully so, going in for Elizabethan rhetorical unfurling or making hay with a kind of who-me insouciance. This failure to ride the wave of modernism meant that Millais' meteoric rise came to an abrupt halt when she went out of fashion. One could argue that there was even a backlash by critics and modernists later on, and it suddenly became gauche to be a fan of her poetry, which held none of the experimental hallmarks of modernism. I mentioned Maggie Doherty earlier. She wrote a fascinating piece for The New Yorker. On how Malay's story could be seen as an allegory for the pitfalls of rapid fame. I've linked it down below in the description and in the substack link to the script of this episode. It's a great read and I thoroughly recommend it. There is something of a resurgence of interest in Malay's career in the last ten years, with many people calling for a review of her work and more importantly, a greater focus on it. Her unjust fall from poetry grace has meant that Millet's legacy today is that of the socialite of the Roaring Twenties who occasionally recited poetry. Journalist Amanda Ong wrote for The Guardian. For far too long, Millet's work has been overshadowed by her reputation. A party girl poet, a sexually adventurous bisexual, a morphine addict. But then, Millet also won the Pulitzer for poetry in 1923. Malay won her Pulitzer for her collection, The Ballad of the Harp Weaver. It is from that collection that this week's poem, Siege, is taken. On goes on to write for The Guardian about the predatory nature of most biographies written about Malay. They highlight the scandal of her personal exploits and the unavoidable tragedy of her end. This, however, does nothing to highlight the powerful poetry that she wrote. She worked in a style of poetry that was ardently feminist and forward-thinking. In her verse and in her plays were themes of anti-consumerism and mortality that remain as relevant today as they were when they were first published. Siege, to me, is a perfect example of the thought-provoking nature of Malay's work and the depth and complexity she was able to bring about in just a few lines. A quick note on the structure of the poem before we begin. It's split into two quatrains, a stanza consisting of four lines, and one couplet to finish. The rhyme scheme of the poem is a little inconsistent, with the first quatrain and final couplet having no set rhyme scheme, but the second stanza following an A-B-A-B scheme. There are several reasons that Millais may have done this. We will discover them as we work our way through the poem. For now, we'll begin with the first four lines. This I do, being mad. Gather baubles about me. Sit in a circle of toys. And all the time, death beating the door in. The opening line is a gripping one, as is typical of Millet's work. Our speaker confronts the audience with the logic of everything that follows. Or rather, the absence of it madness. Even in terms of sentence structure, we can see Malay's fondness for tradition. It is almost Elizabethan in its layout. From there, we come to understand the speaker's unique form of madness, a compulsion to collect. They gather baubles and toys. The choice of words for their possessions is very deliberate. Baubles are trinkets or knick-knacks, objects of little to no value other than sentimentality. This is given even more weight when we hear of the speaker sitting in the middle of a circle of toys. Objects which can hardly be called priceless. We might wonder why Millais has chosen to portray possessions in such a fashion. In a few lines she has conjured an odd, almost gothic scene. The reason for the seeming lack of value in all these objects becomes clear midway through the third line. And all the time, death beating the door in. Millet's more modern sensibility makes itself immediately apparent. Death beating the door in is a violent vibrant image that alludes far more to the Jazz Age than to Shakespeare's time. Millet establishes her understanding of mortality in an instant. Death in her poem and in life is relentless and is coming for the speaker in the room. And so the siege of the title is given its form. The gothic idea hinted at in the first lines is given further credence with the appearance of death. Her poetry here takes on a likeness to Emily Dickinson, a poet who frequently encountered death and the supernatural in her work. In Millet's poem, death is not some grand concept, but rather an earthbound thing that must physically attack a door to get in. Now on the one hand, this is obviously a metaphor for the inevitability of death and the awareness we all eventually gain of its coming. But on the other hand, giving death a more human form was commonplace for Millet, As academic John T. Newcomb put it, in her familiar technique of personifying death, Millet did not treat it as a vague metaphysical abstraction, but instead as a specific and all too familiar figure. Once we understand who is at the door, our speaker's madness becomes clearer in the second stanza. White jade and an orange pitcher. Hindu idol, Chinese god. Maybe next year when I'm richer, carved beads and a lotus pod. The speaker is counting their baubles in a series of lists. Each one represents how they are trying to distract themselves from the figure at the door. Summer luxuries of the home. White jade and an orange pitcher. Some are totems for religion. Each one supposed to be a bomb or reassurance that all does not end in death. Hindu idol, Chinese God. Malay's choice to include such an international pantheon is intended to show that everyone is doing this. Looking for a distraction from death. Not just our speaker. Hope and ambition make an appearance too. Maybe next year when I'm richer. The drive to gather wealth is pointless in this poem. Looking to the future does not remove the beating at the door. Finally, more pointless things are listed. Carved beads and a lotus pod. There are three distinct full stops at the end of this stanza to show the speaker trailing off. Another modern motif from Malay. They are trailing off because their pile of possessions means nothing in the grand scheme of things. As I said earlier, a rhyme scheme suddenly asserts itself in the second stanza. The reason is a clever use of poetic technique from Malay. The rhyming simply increases the pace of the poem. It introduces a hint of desperation to the stanza, one that our reader feels. As we rhyme, the lists increase in speed, and so the desperation mounts. The first stanza moves at a leisurely pace. The toys hinting at the fact that our speaker might have youth on their side. The inclusion of wealth and religion in the second stanza, along with that whiplash increase, shows us that not only has time moved on, but that it's running out as well. The siege of the poem's title continues, as all good sieges do, in the final couplet, and all the time, death beating the door in. Malay has created a refrain here, a repetition of a single image, because death is relentless. The refrain reminds us that no matter what amount of variation we bring into our lives, death remains the same. All our speakers' efforts to distract themselves is for nothing. Death is still waiting in the wings, albeit a little aggressively here. The final couplet acts as a blow to the speaker. Their madness is that they think they can stop death with possessions. And the final couplet, a solid refrain, acts as a full stop to the poem. Siege by Edna and Vincent Millay is definitely not a modernist, is definitely not a modernist poem. Siege by Edna St Vincent Millay is definitely not a modernist poem. For a start, it is a little too short and direct to do the job, but its ideology and clever structuring are distinctly of the movement that Millay is so often omitted from. These days, a focus on Millay's poetry is lost in favour of exploring the scandals that were an everyday part of her life. I mentioned earlier that her poem First Fig became a kind of prophecy. Unfortunately, the literary fashion changed, and one of the earliest examples of a poetry rock star was left behind. Millet did not take this well at all, and this, combined with a car accident that led to an increased dependency on opiates to manage pain, meant that her life ended in addiction. She unfortunately passed away at the age of 58. This poem proves, though, that Millais' literary success was not merely the result of her being fashionable for a time. I think Seed shows the work of a poet with an innate understanding of form, structure, and imagery, who, on their best day, could conjure images that seared themselves into a reader's brain. Academic J.D. McClatchy sums it up pretty well when he writes, Millais could write poems with an obsessed, haunting power. Each a silver cage for melancholy. Poems that expose the banalities of more burly or experimental styles and continue to touch the heart, disturb the intelligence, and lodge in the memory. What did you think of the poem? As always, this is my interpretation, and I'd love to hear yours. If you'd like to get in touch with me, there are a few ways to do so. You can reach me directly by email words that burn podcast at gmail.com you can get in touch with me through the podcast website www.words that burn podcast.com i'm on twitter or x at words that burn i'm on instagram and threads at words that burn podcast and tiktok at words that burn too you can find all of those linked below in the description. If you'd like to read the script for this week's podcast, complete with citations and sources, check the Substack link below. As I mentioned previously, if you enjoyed this episode or know someone who might, consider sending it to them directly or leaving me a review wherever you listen. Words That Burn is written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast once again.